0: Welcome to The Penguin Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to The Penguin Podcast. My name is Tony Lacey and I'm Publishing Director of Viking here at Penguin. Over the years I've published a range of titles from Will Self's Book of Dave to Claire Tomlin's Dickens and several books by musicians, which is why I'm here to present this episode on music. Music plays a big role in our lives. It helps define who we are and it can evoke strong memories and feelings. So it's no wonder we have a fascination with the people behind the music we love, and it's been my pleasure to bring their stories to you. First up, we have a clip from the most sought-after autobiography of the year, written by Morrissey, read by David Morrissey. Here is an extract from the audiobook edition of Autobiography.
2: My childhood is streets upon streets upon streets upon streets. Streets to define you and streets to confine you. With no sign of motorway, freeway or highway. Somewhere beyond hides the treat of the countryside, for hourless days when rains and rains lift, permitting us to be amongst people who live surrounded by space and are irked by our faces. Until then, we live in forgotten Victorian knife-plunging Manchester, where everything lies wherever it was left over a hundred years ago. The safe streets are dimly lit, the others not lit at all. But both represent a danger that you're asking for, should you find yourself out there once curtains have closed for tea. Past places of dread, we walk in the centre of the road, looking up at the torn wallpapers of brownie blacks and purples as the mournful remains of derelict shoulder-to-shoulder houses, their safety now replaced by trepidation. Local kids ransack empty houses, and small and wide-eyed, I join them balancing across exposed beams and racing into wet black cellars. Underground cavities where murder and sex and self-destruction seep from cracks of local stone and shifting brickwork, where aborted babies found deathly peace instead of unforgiving life. Half fell by the local council, houses are now left slowly crumbling and become croft waste ground for children to find new excitements with no lights for miles. Fields are places in books, and books are placed in libraries. We, though, are out here in the now, unchecked and ungoverned. Manchester's Victorian generation having coughed to their deaths after lifetimes of struggle, and these waterlogged alleys have occasional shafts of greeny-yellow grass jutting between flagstones that have cracked under duress like the people who tread them. Here, behind the shelves of shabby shops... That foul animal waste waft, from which no one can fail but to cover their mouths as they race past. These back entries, once so dutifully swept and swilled and donkey-stoned to death by the honest poor, now have no future. For this now is their future. That moment when time runs out. Like us, these streets are left to their own stark destiny. Birds abstain from song in post-war industrial Manchester where the 1960s will not swing, where the locals are the opposite of worldly. More brittle and less courteous than anywhere else on earth, Manchester is the old fire wheezing its last, where we all worry ourselves soulless, forbidden to be romantic. The dark stone of the terraced houses is black with soot, and the house is a metaphor for the soul, because beyond the house there is nothing, and there are scant communications to keep track of anyone should they leave it. You bang the door behind you, and you may be gone forever, or never seen again. Oh, untraceable you. The ordinary process of living takes up everyone's time and energy. The elderly muse in bitter ways, and the kids know too much of the truth already. Unfathomably, as we fester, there are casinos and high living elsewhere. First-class travel and money to burn. Here, no one we know is on the electoral roll. And a journey by car is as unusual as space travel. Prison is an accepted eventuality and is certain to turn you into a criminal. Penalties assessed, arrears called in, and dodging life's bullets is known as survival. It is only ever a question of when. In the midst of it all, we are finely tailored flesh. Good-looking Irish trawling the slums of Side and Hume... Neither place horrific in the 1960s, but both regions dying a natural death of slow decline. The family is large and always admired, the many girls for their neatness and quiet glamour, and always attracting the leisurely stride of local boys. Naturally, my birth almost kills my mother, for my head is too big. But soon it is I, and not my mother, on the critical list of Salford's Pendlebury Hospital. I cannot swallow, and I spend months hospitalized. My stomach ripped open, my throat pulled wide, my parents are warned that I am unlikely to survive. Disappearing beneath a mass of crisscross blanket stitches, I grip onto the short life that has already throttled me. Once I am discharged from hospital, my sister Jackie, older by two years, is interrupted four times as she attempts to kill me. Whether this be rivalry or visionary, no one knows. We are not Vulgarians, yet here we are, in rent-demanding Queen's Square, backing onto the high walls of Loretto Convent, with its broken glass atop, lest we, below, get any fancy ideas. The family is young and amused and all Irish-born but for my sister and I. The lineage leaps back to Nace, where Farrell Dwyer and Annie Brisk beget Thomas Farrell Dwyer, who, somewhere, found Annie Farrell. Battling against the schoolmasterly dullness of detestable poverty, we Irish Catholics know very well how raucous happiness displeases God. So there is much evidence of guilt in all we say and do, but nonetheless, it is said and done. My parents are both from the Crumlin area of Dublin, adjoining streets at that, from large families of struggle. My parents are both striking lockers, and it's they who sail to Manchester as the great extended hordes follow, And soon three houses on Queen's Square are occupied by the maternal side of the family, by whom my sister and I are raised. We rarely see my father's side, but they too are splattered about Manchester, full of boys instead of girls, high in number and eager for glee. The Irish banter is lyrical against the Manchester blank astonishment. Walled in by cold-water dwellings, we huddle about the fire, suitable to our calling. Around us... The tough locals welcome this large Irish band as we roar and rage through the 1960s, pinned together by pop music and by the suspicious absence of money, which, in fact, no one anywhere seems to have. Nameless turnings suggest nothing beyond, and we trudge to school ankle-deep in slush, half-thawed and half-frozen, musing on My Boy Lollipop by Millie Small. The school looms tall and merciless in central Hume. As the last of the old order, a giant black shadow of ancient morality since 1842, invoking deliberate apprehension into every wide-eyed small face that cautiously holds back the tears as he or she is left at its steps, into long-echoing halls of whitewashed walls, of carbolic and plimsoll and crayon blazing through the senses, demanding that all cheerful thought must now die away. This bleak mausoleum called St. Wilfred's has the power to make you unhappy, and this is the only message it is prepared to give. Padlocks and keys and endless stone stairways, down unlit hallways to darkened cloakrooms where something terrible might befall you. There are floors unused and cellars untouched in rooms unloved by ancestors who were certain that wisdom must lie in a keen self-loathing. St. Wilfred's is an asylum of sorts, for Hume's pitiful poor... And although it had been declared due for demolition in 1913, it grinds on, 50 years later, dragging wee small children with it, plunging us into its own rooms of gloom. Children tumble in soaked by rain, and thus they remain for the rest of the day, wet shoes and wet clothes moisten the air, for this is the way. Our teachers too are dumped, as we are in St. Wilfrid's Parish. There is no money to be had and there are no resources. Just as there is no colour and no laughter, these children are slackly shaped and contaminated. Many stragglers stink and will faint due to lack of food, but there is no such thing as patient wisdom to be found in the sharp agony of the teachers.
1: That was an extract from Autobiography by Morrissey, read by David Morrissey, which is out today. Up next is an interview I had with Graham Nash, whose autobiography, Wild Tales, was published earlier this year. Here he is telling me how extraordinarily there was no music in his house in Manchester when he was young.
0: We were a very poor family from uh, Salford, which I just read recently was one of the largest slums in England. Of course, I didn't know that, you know. Uh, there, so there was no music in the house. My, I used to whistle and sing harmony with my father when he would uh, walk me uh, through the park to the movies that w- when we'd go to the to, to the flicks, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I had no music in my life. But we he had a,
1: he had a bit of a voice, did he?
0: Um, not that I remember. Just that he he was a he was a jolly fellow, you know. He yeah. was a big big lad. Yeah. Um but no, we couldn't afford record players, or you know, and it was only re- late, late, you know, when I was nine or ten years old that we actually got a uh, radio.
1: Yeah, so you meet Alan Clark at school. That's the most amazing piece of that and you find your two voices blend brilliantly.
0: I know from the very beginning, yeah. from you know, singing the Lord's Prayer in the morning at assembly, you know, to. Uh, Minstrel shows we did, and then we found Skiffle, you know, with Lonnie Donegan and and Saturday Club on the BBC, and then early American rock and roll from Radio Luxembourg. So
1: the Lonnie Donegan stuff, the Skiffle, the British stuff, that predated the rock and roll. That that came first, did it, for you? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. do you prefer singing harmony? I mean, obviously, you do uh, solo shows on your own, but it's interesting that you, obviously, with the Hollies with Alan Clark, and then later, obviously, with Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, um, you prefer harmony singing.
0: I do. It, it, it's just the way I am. I think it's part of that British thing of, of let's all work together and we can make it through these incredibly chaotic times. Uh yeah. I was born in 1942, so World War Two still had three years to go. Yeah. And it, uh, it it was a, always a situation when you didn't really know whether your house was going to be there tomorrow or whether your friends were going to be alive. And so uh, when Skiffle came along, it, it gave 15-year-old, 14-, 15-year-old kids something to do.
1: Yeah. So it was a kind of escape in some ways. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and what about writing songs? I mean, obviously, you've got a great voice and... Uh, You sing well with other people and so on. But presumably what makes a difference in the long run is the ability to write songs. When when did you start writing songs?
0: Alan and I wrote our first song on uh, a bench opposite Regent Road uh, Bats in (laughs) in Salford. And uh, we decided that uh, we would give it a shot at writing songs. And our first song was... um, Hey, Just What's Wrong With Me, a kind of an interesting title for our first song. Very, beca- very adolescent title. Yes, yeah. indeed. And it became the, uh, the B-side of our first single.
1: All oh, right. right, OK. And did you write in the same way that you wrote later? I mean, my impression reading your book uh, of the songwriting in Crosby, Stills & Nash is that You all write, you bring songs to the party. Each of you are good songwriters. Absolutely. Whereas with Alan, were you you doing it differently? Were you sort of collaborating in some way? Yes,
0: Alan and I, and then later Tony Hicks, of course, uh, collaborated many times on writing songs. With David and Stephen and Neil, uh, we do bring songs to the, uh, to the party, as it were. We have what we call the reality rule, and that's this. If I, if I sing you a song and you don't react, you won't hear that song again. Right. But if I play you a song and you go, oh, I know what I can do in the chorus or I can do this lead guitar line there, now we're home.
1: So there's been no flouncing and no one has said, I want this song in. And no, yeah, no, that, good, that, not at all. That's no, good.
0: we have to be respectful of each other.
1: So you, you you came to London um and seemed like you almost immediately took off in a huge huge way. It must have been so exciting being It, it was
0: very days. exciting. The very first time we came to London was with Alan Clark and we went to the two 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 eyes was it Two Eyes Coffee? I think bar? it was Two Eyes Coffee, yeah, bar, yeah. Yes. And and did a couple of songs there then then later of course when we when we actually formed the Hollies in December of 1962 um by April of 63, which is only, what, five months, uh, we were recording and and our first record was a hit and we haven't looked back since.
1: There's a story in the book about going back to Manchester, that rather poignant story where you see your your mum at the bus stop. Um, And one thing struck me is, what's a rock star doing taking a bus from Salford to Manchester?
0: I'm not a rock star.
1: (laughs) Do you remember you. Trying to tell me it's somebody from the hollies, took buses. Yeah,
0: no, I I have never seen myself in those uh, through those eyes. I, I I'm I'm glad to be alive. I'm grateful to be creative. Right. Uh, I, I'm I'm so happy to be a part of the human race. And I, I I don't see myself as a rock star at all.
1: That was a short clip from my interview with Graham Nash. And you can listen to the entire interview on the Penguin Books SoundCloud channel. www.soundcloud.com slash penguin books. Graham's book Wild Tales is out now in Hardback and Ebook, a brilliant gift for all fans of the Hollies or Crosby Stills, Nash and Ashton Young, this Christmas. Time now for another rock star, Tim Burgess, lead singer of the British rock band The Charlatans. Here's an extract from his autobiography, Telling Stories.
3: In nineteen eighty two, everything was different. Everyone was suited up and drinking away their wages in neon and pastel funk dens like pips and rotters. This was before any kind of nod towards metrosexuality. City centre nightclubs were little more than weekend hunting grounds for a liaison with the opposite sex. I grew up in a town called Northwich, 20 miles outside Manchester, which was our closest big city. Like many towns close to somewhere casting a cultural shadow, It's safe to say that Northwich didn't offer much to an inquisitive and bored teenage mind. It was definitely a case of looking to the bright lights of the big city. We heard that the best bands in the world would stop off somewhere near us, party, and then leave for the next stage of the world tour. Famously, there was the free trade hall where someone had accused Bob Dylan of being Judas, when he went electric, and he replied, You're a liar. Where the Sex Pistols had played one of the most iconic gigs in modern music history. OK, yeah, it was the lesser free trade-all, but who's judging? You are? Well, it still counts. From where Granada regularly broadcast musical milestones into our semi-detached suburban lives. Punk had made anything seem possible, and the possibilities were starting to become realities at the Hacienda. Bands ruled the roost during the week. Groups like Psychic TV and the Jesus and Mary chain with worship switching at the weekends to the DJ booth. So began the rise of the DJ cult. In the mid to late 80s, I'll be there most Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday nights, making the 20 miles each way pilgrimage from the village of Moulton, near Northwich, to the corner of Whitworth Street West. Any given Tuesday or Thursday night, I could pretty much guarantee a ride back home but on Fridays and Saturdays it was a little more complex. I had to walk, a feat made all the more psychologically daunting by the fact that Northwich isn't even in the same county. The club would close at two AM and we, always, Ronnie, often Frank, and occasionally Cheddar and Staggy, would set off down to Deansgate, through Old Trafford, past Man United's ground, we'd pass by Morris's old house in Stratford, then on through Sale before arriving at Altrincham train station at about 5am. The first train to Northwich was at 6 o'clock and we might take it if we had any spare change. From Northwich the final leg was a four-mile walk to Moulton. I would do that at least once most weeks at this time. I saw a lot of bands at the Hacienda. Deathcult, who were formerly Southern Deathcult and later became The Cult. The Fall, Orange Juice, A Certain Ratio Section 25 But the most important band I saw there was New Order They were brilliant at any time But beyond belief on an otherwise ordinary Tuesday night Thursday night saw resident DJ Dave Haslam host a Temperance Club And although it was thought of as an indie night The playlists were varied New Order again The Rolling Stones Public Enemy The Smiths Mantronics, Sonic Youth EPMD and the brilliant corners. These nights, a really important part of the Hacienda story, are sometimes lost in the all too often rewritten history of the club. They blazed the trail for the likes of Justin Robertson and the Dust Brothers, Ed and Tom, who began their DJ careers in Manchester, but would later change their name and slay the world as the Chemical Brothers. The Hacienda was like a new friend, recommending music, always being there for the good times, and sometimes the bad. It was there I would witness the changing face of youth culture. Anyone who considered themselves anyone in Manchester's fashion elite would be sprawled on sofas, looking cool and being seen.
1: That was an extract from Telling Stories by Tim Burgess, read by the actor Craig Parkinson, which is out now. Now, from rock stars to composers. Puffin recently recorded all Rod Dahl's children's classics with some great narrators, including Kate Winslet, Chris O'Dowd, Bill Bailey and Richard Ayoade. New music was composed to go with these recordings and who better to do it than Rusty Bradshaw, composer extraordinaire and keyboardist for Florence and the Machine. Rusty came into Penguin HQ to chat with Roy McMillan about the experience of composing music for books.
4: Normally, I would start this kind of interview with an introduction i'm not going to do that i'm going to ask you to do it so you are rusty bradshaw tell us who are you wow okay uh i am
5: as you say rusty bradshaw um i am a musician um and uh i wrote some music
4: for you (laughs) Well, I think, uh, it. it's, I think you're hardly bigging yourself up. So, you are a, a, a musician and a composer and a keyboard player with Florence, Florence and the Machine, Machine. And you've composed, especially music for some of the Dahl children's works yeah. that Penguin produced in audio. Um, first of all, how did, you, how did we find you? Um, by luck, really. I, my
5: tech for Florence and the Machine was working at Pinewood and heard that some music was needed. And his producer Glenn. got in contact with me. Glenn, sorry, yeah, got in contact with me. And it went from there, really. That was at the start of the year.
4: And I apologise for the banalness of this question, but where do you start when you, you're, you're told, here are stories which most people aren't familiar with. You're given the information that you're supposed to compose the music for them. How do you begin... I think that was quite
5: easy, really, because it's real dull, And, um, you know, it's so creative, the writing anyway. So um, luckily I'd read, I think, all of the books bar one. Um, so for me it was kind of a matter of, you know, recollecting um, what I had um, memorised from years ago about the books anyway, which was quite a challenging, something quite exciting. So then once you've got that and maybe, re- you know, quickly read over the, the um, story again as much as you can, it's a matter of translating the... Um, Feeling and
4: content of that book, musically. And so. did you have any sort of kind of style prompts? Were there any particular composers or styles that you thought would suit as a starting point to, to to begin matching music to your sense of the tone of the book?
5: Well, there was a whole kind of there was the idea of making it sound quite Danny Elfman and kind of orchestral.
4: He's the composer for The Simpsons and Edward Scissorhands. That's correct. So yeah. he, he's known for being, orce- as you say, orchestral, but also. Uh, witty and they're very spry and yeah
5: really sort of animated I guess and yeah I mean if you look at a lot of his work it's kind of it's not loop it doesn't revolve around loops it's constantly growing and changing and being dramatic and you know building and has lots of crescendos and stuff um, so I did try and do a lot of that with some of the books I wanted to kind of like although I was writing it all on a computer I really made an effort to have uh, you know stuff speeding up and slowing down. So it felt a bit more like an orchestra would and stuff, and um, that allows for more animation in the music as well, if you know what I
4: mean. So. And where do you start? Do you, do you sit at a keyboard and, and, and work on a theme? Do you just... Yeah. And, and is it literally... I, 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 I'm going to use the word playing, but I mean uh, exploring an idea until something begins to work? What's the process involved?
5: As you say, well, I'm a keyboard player, so a lot of it was sitting at the piano and coming up with a melody and stuff um quite weirdly though i've take really taken to the um voice the dictaphone thing on iphone so quite often i'll be walking to the tube from my house in the morning and have an idea in your head and then you can just you can literally walk down the street and you've got a melody hum it into there get to the studio work it out on the piano and take it from there so that's pretty convenient that um dictaphone thing i've got to say um yeah and then you just kind of You've got the melody and stuff and you work out a chord progression and obviously there's a time limitation as well because it can't go on for three minutes two minutes i think it was um glenn kind of gave me the brief that it was practically a minute for each title think that uh, that's you...
4: not long to to establish a theme develop it change it and what have you that's quite it's quite a that's true scale. yeah i mean it's not a you know a conventional song would be what three three minutes
5: 20 which you're kind of used to working in sort of verse chorus verse chorus middle eight chorus structure aren't you so with this, it's more of a kind of like you know, it's got a build and it's got a climax at fifty-two seconds, and fall you know, and have reverb tails falling out and die down by a minute. So, but it's you know, it's possible. Um, um, you can get a lot done in that amount of time as well, you know. And I, also, I don't think you want it any longer for an audiobook. You're introducing the reader, aren't you? And then it's up to them where their mind gets transported by the narrator, I guess. So,
4: and for you, had you had experience of doing this kind of thing before?
5: um not for a a book no but for other media stuff i have here yeah. um so no
4: okay <laughs> you can admit it now um, yeah <laughs> but uh, but other sh- but other short form you had had
5: yeah kind of like small bits in films and stuff and um tv shows maybe
4: yeah and you um, say you're working on a computer but trying to make it sound orchestral so mm. um were you able to hear as it were the sort of completed version As you were sitting at the keyboard, or did it then? Did you send it away to get enhanced in any way, or did were you aware exactly how it was going to sound when you completed it?
5: Um, I think so. Yeah, you kind of. I mean, once you've got that melody written on the piano, you kind of think about what instruments are going to represent the um, characters in the book and the tone of the book. You know, I mean, with the BFG, instantly I thought of a tuba because that's kind of like. Low and plodding and sounds fat. So, I mean, that was one instrument that specifically came into my head. And then um, with something else like the twits I wanted something that was obviously really cheeky and menacing and like like I kind of use a minor scale. And then um, with that track, I kind of referenced, um, do you know the film The Third Man and the theme music for that which is played on the zither so then i i actually went to talk to a zither player in probably music in london who i met a guy called alistair he was charming and the most interesting man you could meet and he wanted a fortune for playing a minute's worth of audio so i actually used a zither plugin um, which is a bit of software um, so I played that on the keyboard, so to speak.
4: But yeah, you can, you know. Any other specifics for the, the, the other ones you were talking there about? So you had the tuba for the BFG, and that managing to get a zither into the uh, into the twits. What about? Um, uh, I mean, Charlie or Matilda or
5: Charlie had a trump in it. Yeah, Charlie had a trumpet in it, and um, I did. I guess I was kind of trying to like because it was orchestral. I was trying to, um, and so much of it was on. You know written in the computer i had to try and make the effort to make it sound as realistic as possible so quite often i'd overdub an acoustic instrument or instruments as much as i could uh, over the top of computer generated so that helps to take it away from that kind of written in in the computer kind of sound if you know what i mean so yeah charlie had a trumpet overdubs bfg had a tuba um i think i played a tin whistle on the um Danny, and the champion of the world. So I went down to Hobgoblin Music again and bought a tin whistle. So that was good fun.
4: Well, there was. I mean, you've mentioned using a tuba and a trumpet uh, and a tin whistle, but if, but but for. Uh, I mean, admittedly, finding the third man as appropriate for the Twits is quite recondite, but even more esoteric. You got a theremin for the magic finger. Tell us a bit more about that. Um, I yeah, I got hold of a the theremin. I bought one. Uh, I thought it'd be really
5: easy to play, and it's the hardest instrument to play I mean just, in, ca- up- just in
4: case people don't know it, it's one of the first electronic instruments ever made and it's it, it looks a bit like a, there's a a, a a vertical pole and there's a horizontal section and you create sounds by effectively getting your hand closer and further away from the various different elements of it it's a, yeah. it's a revolutionary thing but it's very unusual and it's extremely difficult to get a hold of, I'd have thought. Um, no, uh, the
5: company called Moog, who make a lot of synthesizers, they, they produce one. They're not too expensive, but, um, I mean, as you say, yeah, you move your hand to change. There's two controllers. One changes the pitch. So if you move your hand towards it, it will increase the pitch, so you'll get higher. If you move it away, it will lower it. And the other hand is used to um, increase the volume and decrease the volume. But the amount you move your finger by... It, it changes uh the pitch by the mo you know a sm- the smallest movement will change it enormously so um i did sit down thinking you know i'm a genius i'll learn this in two seconds <laughs> and um i've quickly realized that it's you know an <laughs> instrument it takes years to master so what i did with that with that track was use it as a kind of just constantly um Increasing and decreasing pitch sound, rather than actually manage to play the melody, which is probably a bit disappointing to myself. But it still sounds good because it's such a kind of ethereal, spooky sound. Anyway,
4: it is, it's an extraordinary, otherworldly sound. It still sounds as if it comes from somewhere other than other than here.
5: Yeah. I mean. I mean, you hear it a lot on. Um 1950s sci-fi records because I think that's I think it was invented in the 30s um so it's yeah it's it's a ghostly sound and then I think Brian Wilson ended up using using quite a lot of it on a few tracks for the um for the Beach Boys it's now sitting in my bedroom at home and I I need to try and learn to practice and play it but um it's on the to-do list at the moment
4: Will it be appearing on stage with Florence and the Messiniers here? <laughs> do you
5: know, I think it would, re- that's kind of why I bought it as well, because I think it would really suit. I mean, if you could get Flo to learn that instrument, it would look and sound amazing. Um, I've seen Alison Goldfrapp uses one.
4: And having done it now, is this something that you'd like to do more of? Oh, or? definitely, yeah, 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 definitely. I don't know if there's any Roll Dull books left, though, are there, that we haven't
5: haven't done, I don't think so. Um, but, yeah, now hopefully moving into that kind of cinematic thing is something I'd really like to explore. I mean, it's, it's a really creative um, musical area, isn't it? So writing for picture or audio, yeah.
4: What an absolute pleasure to meet you. Thanks very much Thank to you you for Thank you very coming. much, yeah, brilliant.
1: That was Rusty Bradshaw talking to Roy McMillan about composing the music to the new Roald Dahl children's audiobooks, which are available to buy on CD now. Finally... We're going to end this episode on one of our authors who have a fond appreciation of music. Nick Hornby, author of best-selling titles Fever Pitch, High Fidelity, About a Boy, and most recently Stuff I've Been Reading, has written a number of pieces on music, as well as film, TV, art, and other cultural topics, which have been brought together in a new Penguin Specials e-book called Books, Movies, Rhythm, Blues. Here's a short reading from his piece entitled Pain in My Heart.
6: There is an old R&B song that goes, I'd rather be blind, crippled and crazy, somewhere pushing up a daisy, than to let you break my heart all over again. I used to love this song. I would listen to it uncritically, admiring the singer, the late, great and unjustly obscure O.V. Wright, who often seemed to have left his false teeth behind on recording days, but who could build up a pretty terrifying head of steam, despite the whistling noise, and the arrangement and all the other things that pious, white, 20-somethings are supposed to admire when they listen to R&B songs but then an overly analytical and less impressionable friend killed it for me. Why does he have to be blind, crippled, crazy and dead? How do you mean? Well, surely just being dead will get the job done. Blind, crippled and crazy? I don't know. It just seems a bit... detro. I couldn't believe it. He was poking fun at a soul singer. These guys had more or less invented pain and suffering, and if O.V. Wright claimed that he needed to be a corpse with three handicaps, I was willing to take his word for it. Had I been duped? Was it really possible that R&B could be funny? And what's more, inadvertently funny? I dismissed the notion from my mind. r b was always much too important to me to be funny in that way. It was allowed to be fun, of course, but fun is different. With fun, you laugh when you're told to, and not before. When you are younger, and you have no taste, you are vaguely aware that a lot of music you cherish with a po-faced devotion is going to turn out to be utterly ludicrous one day. But r b deals with sex, pain, loss, love things that should remain serious well into your 30s, maybe even beyond. But then, sometime later, I was listening to Wright singing That's How Strong My Love Is, and I experienced a similar sensation. You might not recall Otis Redding's better-known cover of the song as being particularly hilarious, but in Wright it becomes something of a comic tour de force. If I were a fish that had been cast upon the land, he laments, I would stay there if you would let me hold your hand. Now, even I had to admit that this couplet doesn't work, The whole fish hand thing is a real problem. The only mental picture one can paint is desperately surreal, not desperately romantic, and one would have thought that the best way to deal with the line is to get the hell out of it as quickly as possible. But Wright doesn't see it that way. He compounds the problems by ad-libbing after the first if clause. Why does he always come unstuck on the conditionals? So that his version goes like this. If I were a fish, and this is a bad situation to be in, that had been cast upon the land, Pointing out the discomfort of being a fish out of water adds little to Wright's rendition. In fact, this time, there's no way around it. Snorting, derisive laughter is the only proper response. Once I'd recognised the absurdity of the fish lyric, the scales began to fall from my eyes. James Brown's good gods started to get a little grating. Otis Redding's insistence on slipping the word good into Sam Cooke's gentle, cute, wonderful world, don't know what a good slide rule is for, don't know much about the good French I took, only proved to me that testifying isn't appropriate to every circumstance. Al Green's Let's Get Married is a beautiful song that hits all the buttons the title demands until, that is, the little passage right near the end when the band gets into a groove and Green starts noodling around. Let's get married today, he pleads. Might as well. Might as well? Is that really the best the number one love man of the 70s can do? I spent years labouring under the illusion that copying Al Green's Every Move would be my passport to sexual nirvana but might as well isn't going to get anyone very far, especially if you don't look or sound like Al Green in the first place. What worried me most about O.B. Wright and his fish, though, was that it could set me on a terrible, dark, gloomy road leading all the way to classical music, which famously isn't funny at all, ever. I've still got just about enough joke-free music to keep me going, but if anyone happens to find something funny in any of the songs by blues singer Robert Johnson, Hellhound on my trail, or Stones in my Passway, which Griel Marcus describes as a two-minute image of doom. Please, could you keep it to yourself? I don't want to hear about it. That was a reading from Books,
1: Movies, Rhythm, Blues by Nick Hornby, which is available now as a Penguin Specials e-book. And that's it from the Penguin Podcast. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk, And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find them on Twitter at Penguin Podcast.
0: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.